Well, we are going through this series that we've entitled Mission Eyes, the ways in which God is forming us or wants to form us as his people so that we can live with him in bringing about God's mission of restoration here on earth as it is in heaven. That's the mission of God, that he is restoring all things or reconciling all things back under the shalom reign of Christ and that he invites humanity in Christ to join with him in that restoration and reconciliation. And so we as God's people, we have a great mission with God. He calls the church to be involved in this restoring, reconciling work that he is doing of all things. And so we have, uh, we're kind of pulling on a few major doctrines of the church over the last few weeks. We've spoken a little bit about the Trinity from John 20, 21, the verse that is in the foy, that as the Father sent the Son, so the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit, and then Father, Son, and Holy Spirit send the church into the world in this great mission of God. We are people who are sent from the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we spoke about the shalom rule of God, this work of God of restoring all things back under the peaceful shalom rule of God. Then week two, we looked at Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, the beginning of the story and the end of the story. And we spoke about the fact that when God created, he created and he looked and he saw that everything was tov, that Hebrew word for good, even very good. And that in spite of the way in which sin has entered and rebellion against God has brought its own destruction in the world, that God is always and forever seeking to draw humanity back to himself, now in Christ. And we looked at the end of the story in Revelation 21 and 22, where God says that he's bringing about a new heaven and a new earth. That final, ultimate restoration of all things but that he calls us to live the future now. The ways in which we live today should be representative and point towards this future beauty of the restoration of all things. And we, as the people of God, carry and share in that living out of that new community, that new way, that new creation, that new restoration that God longs for. So we looked at creation And we looked at the end times. And then we looked at the cross. We said that it was in Christ, on the cross, that God reconciled all things. Now that is still being worked out. But that it's in Christ that all things are being reconciled. The cross is a decisive moment of victory. I was talking to somebody yesterday about about this kind of thing. And uh, I think it was Jacques actually. And about the fact that when I think about the cross of, of Jesus, and the Alpha Course it talks about the cross of Jesus being the kind of D-Day of all things, the decisive battle where the enemy is overcome. But then there's this period in between the decisive battle and this end time, which is kind of like, well, D-Day, V-E Day is when everything was completed. And then there's in between, this in-between time where where Nicky Gumbel in the Alpha Course says, it's kind of like we're now mopping up the, the, the enemy 
his worst work. And we're in this in-between time as the people of God. The decisive battle in Christ has been won. The final ultimate end is not yet, but we are in this phase of mopping up all that the enemies of God have sought to bring about, all the destruction. And God calls us into this restoring, healing work. God's called us to that. And so he is missionizing us to his mission. Not my mission, not your mission. It's not even the church's mission. It's God's. But he brings us into it as his people, as his church. And so today we're going to think about the doctrine of the church. The church. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, our place in God's grand scheme of things. And sometimes the church takes a bit of a battering. Sometimes the church takes a bit of a battering from the outside world. It makes judgments on us, some of which might be true, many of them are not. Actually, a lot of judgments are made on the church that just aren't true. But also some of the judgment on the church comes internally. The judging of one another or of others, of different denominations. Or whether the church has had its day. Even within uh, some of the, the writings about the church in, in modern day um, kind of expressions or modern day perspectives of the church questioning, that, does the church even have a place? And so there's even a criticism about the church from within. And it's very easy for people to deconstruct the church. Well, it shouldn't be this and it shouldn't be that and it's and we can't be doing this and we can't be doing that. And there's lots of people who want to deconstruct the church. But, but I'm, I'm waiting for where the reconstruction of it comes. What does that look like? What does it mean to be the people of God in this generation? And I'm, I'm tempted to, to caution those who, who always speak so negatively about the church until they've got something positive that they're saying, well, if it's not this, then it's this. Let's walk in that then. <coughs> but I want to say that in the eyes of God, the church has a far higher place than most of us recognize or understand. God delights in his church. He loves the church and gave himself for the church. And so while I understand that sometimes there is need for us to take apart and deconstruct the church, I want today to pause in this moment to see how this is how God views the church of Jesus Christ. And so I want us to go to that uh, passage to find out what God's perspective of the church is, despite our imperfections. And God is much more optimistic about his people. He sees us individually and collectively with the potential and optimism of grace. He looks at his people, he says, in grace and in Christ, there is so much more that the people of God are and can do, more they can, than they can ask or imagine. God sees in us and for us more than we can see in and for ourselves, individually and collectively. 
But the book of Ephesians, uh, from which I read the, the passage just a few moments ago, is, is a wonderful uh, book that provides a picture of what feels like the model church. As you read through it, I know there are all kinds of encouragements about what they can be doing, but it, it, it's kind of like Paul wears this church with a sense of pride. It's a, it's a model church. Uh, he, had, he had been there for three years, planting the church, teaching the church, equipping the leaders. If you go to Acts chapter 19 and 20, you'll read about the establishing of the church in Ephesus. There was great moves of the Spirit, great miracles that took place, but there was always considerable opposition as well, but they, they held on to Christ. They were filled with the Spirit. And Paul in the three years there has really taken them to, to heart. And they're kind of like the model church. And now Paul's in prison. And he's writing to them to encourage them, remind them of who they are in Christ, to remind them to keep their eyes, their full attention on Jesus. This is how they remain the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And we glean a lot from the prayer that we read in Ephesians chapter 1. And so we're just going to walk through it a couple of verses at a time. So let me remind you, Ephesians 1, 17, and hopefully the words will be on the screen. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Let's just pause there. We'll leave the verse up so you can see it. He prays that the church would receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the Father would give that to his church. And here's why. The purpose of that wisdom and revelation is so that we will know Jesus better. But let me just pause there. If nothing else goes in today, let this sink in. The purpose of giving the Spirit is so that we would get to know Jesus better. Now, it may be great if we were wise and full of wisdom and all of that, but the Spirit's ministry is to bring us closer and deeper with Jesus to know him better. Now, not know more about him, although that's helpful as well, but to know him. In, in Hebrew uh, language and in, and in Hebrew culture, that word to know doesn't just mean to know about, I have some information. But it is ex it's the, the, the language of knowing somebody personally, to have experience of them and with them. So, for instance, I know my wife. But I don't just know lots of information about her, that she's a great cook, that she's a lot of fun, she's very intelligent, she's uh, patient, long-suffering. There's all these things that I know about her. It's not as if I've read it somewhere and thought, oh, yes, yes, that's, that's Carolyn. But how do I know? I know because I have experience that we encounter one another. We know each other by living with personal relational experience. That's the kind of picture of knowledge that has been spoken of here. That Holy Spirit comes, the spirit of wisdom and revelation to reveal more of Christ, to take us into, usher us into a greater deepening knowledge of Jesus. We've got to know Jesus better. 
That has to be our priority and our pursuit. Our priority pursuit in life. Much more than information about him, but encounter with Jesus. A life set on seeking Jesus to know him better. If I can urge you to anything, make your life about seeking to know Jesus better. Jeremiah 29, 13 and 14 reads like this. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is not partial. This is not part-time. This is not little bits of our life. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. Honestly, in all my years of pastoral ministry, I've realized, and, and as I've spoken with all kinds of people, that it's on this one area that things crumble. Because they have not made their whole life about seeking Christ first. It's as simple as that. I could sit down just now, and that would be enough. Seeking Jesus is our life. The pursuit of Christ. I will be found by you when you seek me with all your heart, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. Whatever that is for you, whatever that captivity place might be, we seek him with our whole heart. But there's more. As we know Christ better, so we become enlightened to what he invites us into, of what he brings and gives to those who seek him with all their heart. Let's go into Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. As we get to know Jesus better, we're also enlightened. The eyes of our heart are enlightened. Now, what does that mean, that phrase, the eyes of our heart? Well, it really means our whole inward self, our intellect, our will, our emotions. When we talk about the heart in Bible times, it, 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 we think nowadays it means our emotions. But in Bible times, the heart is everything of the inner self. The heart, the mind, the will. That everything within us is enlightened, illuminated by and in Jesus as we seek him, as we pursue him, as our lives are set on him, as we know him better and encounter him more, there's a great enlightening and illuminating that takes place in our inner self. Mind, heart, will, in every way. But enlightened to what? Well, it talks about enlightened to the hope to which he has called you. God wants to enlighten us. As we seek and come to know Jesus better, we will become enlightened to hope. If you feel as if you're not enlightened to hope this morning, get to Jesus. Let's seek him and pursue Christ, for he is our hope. And so where we're devoid of hope, 
It's not something that we can muster up, well, I hope this and I hope this. The first place we must go if we want truly to encounter hope is to come to know Jesus better. Everything comes from there. And as we do in our encounter with him, he illuminates our inner self, heart, mind, spirit, will to this hope. And it's both future hope We've been talking about that, the fact that we are heading towards the restoration of all things, when all things will be made new. It's a beautiful, hope-filled picture, but it's also present because God says, I want you to live that, people of God, now as a display to all of this great hope that we find in Jesus Christ. And when we get to know Jesus better and more and more and encounter with him, the revelation of that hope, of what God is doing and leading us towards, increases but it's not just that we're saying ah that wouldn't that be great wouldn't that be great when we get to that place and everything all things will be made new well it is that but it's also saying but let's live in that hope now we should be the most hopeful people in the world church the most hope-filled people in what we do and where we go and what we say and it comes by revelation the deeper we get to know jesus and then there's an illumination from the inside out of this living hope. For the future, but the future breaking into the here and now. And that's for you personally, but it's also for us collectively. And we would have a sense of what this living hope is for today in Christ Jesus. We are changed by this living hope. We live differently because of that hope we see in Christ. Listen, all things are being made new. God is already in this work of restoring all things, and he invites us to join him in that. I get excited when I think about what, what we are moving towards, but I also get excited as to what God is doing right here, right now. This hopeful renewing and restoring and healing of all things, even our very lives. What else is he uh, revealing or showing us as we grow deeper with Christ? Well, not just the hope to which he has called you. We're called into this hope and we live out this hope and we are hopeful because of this hope. But then also that we would know and be illuminated or enlightened to the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, when we first read this, and when I first read this, we might think of this as an explanation or a clarification of the hope to which he's called you. So the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. But actually, when, when you look at what it says in the original Greek language, you, you'll notice that the inheritance is God's. It's what God is getting. It's what God is receiving in this section. Not, not what we are receiving. We are receiving this hope in Christ Jesus. But this little few words here is about what God is getting. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And so when we read it like that, we discover that the inheritance being written about is God's inheritance what God receives, and that the glorious inheritance that God receives 
is you. That's God's glorious inheritance. You ever thought of yourself as that? God's glorious inheritance? That's you. And that's what he receives, the blessing. And it's glorious to God. You're glorious to God, church. Individually and together. You're his beautiful inheritance. That's how God sees you. Those in Christ, the church, we are God's joyful inheritance. And then the prayer then, in this section here, is a prayer for us to see what it means for us to be God's cherished possession. We belong to God. We are his cherished possession. I think there's something beautiful about having that revelation or enlightenment in our in ourself when we suddenly realize, man, I'm, I'm the glorious inheritance of God. I'm his cherished possession. True hope for the present and the future. A grasp of who we are as God's glorious inheritance only comes into view and into focus through encounter with Jesus, through knowing him better. I don't know if uh, any of you have a camera like this. I only remember it from when I was a kid, but I always, we dreaded as a family when we were on holiday and my dad would bring out his camera. And my dad was quite precise in all kinds of things and, and he would ask for a photograph. What we knew this meant was that we would be standing around for the next 10 minutes well, he footed around with the, I don't even know what it was, the focus thing or the aperture or something like that. But it, and he would, he, he would take pictures and, and, and then he would decide to do it again. Remember the ones where you had to get the film and fit it into your camera reel? And you would, you would pull it out and he would always complain if I pulled it out too far. And then he would put it in. And, and, but of course, he, what he was trying to do was get the picture in focus. Well, the way in which we get the picture in focus about what God is doing is by getting to know Jesus better. When we get to know Jesus better, this hope to which we have been called starts to come into focus. When we get to know Jesus better, then this idea of being the cherished possession of God comes into clearer focus. The more we get to know Jesus, you know where I'm going with all of this, that encounter with him, everything comes into clearer focus. And we begin to see things completely different. That is how God missionizes his church. The more we get to know Jesus. And he begins to bring all things into focus. But there's more. Let's go on to Ephesians 1.19. That in getting to know Jesus better, we also would know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present, but also in the one to come. God brings to us, as we get to know Christ better, 
a revelation of his mighty power. God's mighty power that is at work around us and in us and among us and through us. And it is indeed mighty power. It is the same power or the same strength that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the same power and strength that now seats Christ at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Now, this is a lot of power and strength, people. I hope you're grasping that. It is the same strength that is above all rule and authority, above every power and dominion, that same power and strength that is over every name that is invoked, any name that is ever invoked, this power is higher than that name. The same power, the same strength, the same authority, both now in the present age and eternity. Who thinks this is a lot of power and strength? That's a fair amount of power and strength. That is all the power and strength over all things. That is increasingly revealed to us and at work within us the more we know Jesus Christ. That pursuit of Christ. Seek me with all your heart and I will be found. And the better we know Jesus, the more we encounter him, it's not just that we understand and see and hope comes into focus. It's not that we understand and see better that we are the cherished possession of God and all that that means, that that comes into focus. But so also the power and strength, this awesome and I use that word in its proper meaning. This awesome power and strength of God that even raised Christ from the dead comes into focus the deeper and the more we encounter Jesus Christ. So that it is work within us. But it all begins in knowing Christ better. And then it goes on to say in, in Ephesians 1, 22, after this great statement about this same power and strength and authority both now and in the age to come, but so that we would also know that God places all things, all things under his feet, that is the feet of Jesus. That, that's a place of authority. Um, it's almost like everything comes and has to submit at his feet. There's a submission to Jesus. He has authority over all things. That God places all things under his feet and appointed him, that is Jesus, to be head over everything. Nothing is excluded. He is to be head over everything. But wait for it. Why? For the church. Not just for God, but for the church. That we would know, yes, this hope and what it, yes, this, what it means to, to be his cherished people. And yes, that we would know his power. It's for the church. God is placing all these things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. For us. Not just for himself, but for his people. That we would live in this hope, this identity, this power of God. We, the church, those of us in Christ, are being brought in under the reign of Christ over all things so that we might also live out this glorious hope. 
God sees the church in far higher ways than we see ourselves. He has much more for us individually and collectively. This is for the church, Paul says. All of this. This strength, this power, this authority with Jesus in the world we live in. Now, let me be absolutely clear clear here. This is not something in which we are aggressive and arrogant or harsh or judgmental. Look at us. We are the church. We take the authority. We take the power. This is not arrogance. This is not our power. This is God's power. This is the hopefulness that we find in Christ. So it's not to be taken on as the church in an arrogant way, in a judgmental way, but rather in love, in humility. We humble ourselves, but in a hope-filled and grace-filled way that points to King Jesus, where instead of saying, look at us, we say, look at him. Look at him. Isn't he good? Isn't he full of hope for us? Isn't Isn't he strong and powerful and mighty? Not look at us, but look at him. You know, often when I I pray with people in prayer ministry, you know, the best thing I can do is get out the way. What am I doing? I want to point you to to Jesus. I have have nothing up my sleeves for you people. It's just God. And if in any way I can... I can somehow point you upwards towards God, towards Jesus. I'll have done what I'm supposed to do as the church of Jesus Christ. In that humble way, not aggressive, not full of pride, look at us. But instead in humility, pointing to Jesus, look at him. God gave life and breath to the church so that we would become a visible demonstration, a living picture of what it means to be the people of God who bring about the beauty and blessing of the shalom reign of Christ and all its hopefulness and all its strength and all its power. It's Jesus. And the more and the better we get to know Jesus, the more of all of this comes into sharper focus. All of this is for the church. It's a great hymn or prayer of thanksgiving about Jesus but it's all for the church so that we might fulfill the ancient calling of God's people that we would become a light to the nations a people blessed to bless well you can't do it without Jesus you can't do it without Jesus and out of our growing knowledge and love of Christ We live our lives as his church with hope and power. It is he who fills us. He fills his body, the church. There's no other way we can be the church except to know Jesus better. Where did the prayer start? I pray that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would come to you that you might know him better. Well, there's one other verse that I want to go to just now. From Can we go to Ephesians 3, 7 to 10 instead, uh, Kyle? 
Here's how Paul expresses how God sees the church. Paul talks to himself, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. And then this. His intent was that now, through the church, that's us, the manifold wisdom, that is the whole spectrum of the wisdom of God, should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. You know what that means? That means that when we, whenever, as we get to know Jesus better and as we live in the church, we're not just making an announcement to the world around about the hope that we find in Jesus Christ or the strength and power that is in Jesus Christ. We even announce it to the heavenly realms, to the powers and authorities there. Our calling is wide and deep and high. There is power in the church of Jesus Christ because there is power in Jesus Christ. And the more we get to know Jesus and the deeper we live within him, we are not just changing what happens in the earthly realm, but in the heavenly realms as well. We are making known the full spectrum of the wisdom and plan and the mysteries of God in the ways in which we live and speak in Christ. And I'm not, I'm not even sure I understand all of the implications of that, but that's a lot. But God calls his church into this wonderful mission of his. He sees in us much more than we see ourselves. Oh, church, I want you to lift up your head and press back those shoulders, not to take pride in ourselves, but to say, I will boast in Jesus Christ. And I will get to know him better and my life will be in pursuit of him. And as I do, this hope will come into focus. This mission will come into focus. Knowing what it is to be his cherished possession will come into focus. This power and strength that is ex exerted will come into focus. And we will live as his people, his church. Almost there. This is not the end of the story of the church in Ephesus. Paul spent three years with them, which you'll read about in Acts. Paul wrote to them in this letter to the Ephesians. But if we go to Revelation, we find the church in Ephesus again. Where in John's revelation, in the Spirit, he senses the Spirit of God saying this to the church in Ephesus, this model church. And so we can go to Revelation chapter 2. And the Spirit says to John, and then John speaks this and writes this to the, the church in Ephesus. I know your deeds, God says, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested, those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken 
the love you had at first. This model church somehow had forgotten the prayer that Paul had prayed over them. And they had lost their first love of Jesus. I mean, they had worked hard and they had endured and they'd faced all kinds of hardship. They, they were persevering. They were working hard. But they'd forgotten their starting point, their finishing point, and everything in between. I pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation that you might know him better. And sometimes as the church of Jesus Christ, it's a simple truth. We work hard, we persevere, we even face opposition. But friends, if we've lost our first love in Jesus, if we stop getting to know Jesus better, if we've not made our whole life about seeking and knowing him, everything else goes out of focus, and we're just working hard. And that's exhausting, and it's disappointing. And I confess it happens for me as much as anyone else. So my word is simple. We've got to come back to Jesus. That might seem like an odd message to give a bunch of Christians. But I think we've got some tough days ahead and some great days ahead. We can't face it unless we get to know Jesus better. And then we'll have focus on what needs to be done next. It's a little bit like in the Old Testament when Moses says, I, I, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. I'm not going to go forward unless you go with me. It's that kind of moment for the church of Jesus Christ where we have to say, we can't go unless Jesus, our eyes are set on you and we are pursuing you with everything we have and we are getting to know you, Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do that, everything else will begin to come into focus. I know the church is not perfect. I wish I had all the wisdom of what was to happen next. Here's all the wisdom I can offer you. Let's get to know Jesus better. And let's take our lead from that. I invite the worship team to come up. Would you stand with me?